So Thursday night I logged on to uh, my friend Ruthie Jacobson's transcontinental uh, prayer line. She has this about once a month. And when I logged on, if you've ever done a, a, a phone conference, it said, you're number 30, and it was number 30 for me. Turns out about the same time, the former Attorney General of the United States, John Ashcroft, logged on. Pretty soon I heard his voice in that collective conversation that quickly moved and moves whenever she gathers the group, moves to prayer. I was very impressed with this man who is a disciple of Christ before he's anything else. I'd gone on back in July and Ruthie had said, hey, listen, what's this about a new thing? What are you, what are you, what are you doing there at Andrews in Pioneer? So I, sh I had shared with the group back in July, we're claiming these familiar words of, of the ancient prophet Isaiah. God says, I'll do a new thing. I'll pour water on those who are thirsty. Floods on the dry ground, I'll pour my spirit on your descendants, my blessing on your offspring. And we got around to prayer, and I had the privilege of praying for the former attorney general, and claim these words. Claim the promise, God said, I will do a new thing. Here's a question for you. We just had a children's story about healing, but will God's new thing... Will healing be a part of it? Will healing be a part of it? Now, all I know is that uh, one day for sure, I mean, this is the apocalyptic classic, great controversy, and I read these words, servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. What's happening? By thousands of voices, yours and mine, by thousands of voices, all over the earth, 100 nations here at Andrews University, all over the earth, the warning will be given. Jesus is coming. Mi now, here it comes. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. And signs and wonders will follow the believers. Satan also works with lying wonders, bringing down fire even from heaven in the sight of the human race, thus the inhabitants of the earth will be brought to take their stand. One more line. The message will be carried out not so much, carried not so much by argument as by the deep conviction of the Spirit of God. I will do a new thing. Somebody came up to me between services, and uh, my friend Katrina Blue, and she's blue, and she says, Dwight, you know, she says, we need to, we need to have a, a, a prayer service here. I said, let me go to, the, go to the team, our senior leadership team, and let's find out when we could do that. Let's have an anointing service. If you want to come, we'll have it right here. Meet at the church at a certain time. We'll announce it to you a little bit down the way. Why not? I'll do a new thing in your life, God says. A new thing. Will healing be a part of God's new thing? This much I know. When God heals as a part of a new thing, it will deal with the black angel. I want to tell you about the black angel. But first, I want to pray with you. Father, we're asking you to do a new thing. Do a new thing, not for our sakes, but for yours. Do it in our midst. Will healing be a part of that new thing? We're going to watch the Galilean in a moment. Certainly was a part of his mission. But the black angel, Father, we need healing right now from his infliction. 
Teach us these few moments we have, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lewis Meads, in his probing book entitled, How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong?, recounts the story of Michael Christopher's powerful play, The Black Angel. That's where the word, uh, the phrase comes from, The Black Angel. And, and uh, Smeeds is making this point. The play, and I, I'm quoting Smeeds here, haunts everyone who sees it with the most painful question short of our own death. What do you think the most painful question would be? It's the question of forgiveness. Now, he summarizes the play, and so let me, let me read you this summary. Black Angel. Christopher's play is about a former German army general named Engel who tried to make a new beginning for himself and his wife outside a little French village. He had been in prison for 30 years, sentenced there by the Nuremberg War Crimes Court that's at the end of World War II. Now incognito, he hoped, and forgotten, he was building a cabin in the mountains. His own past with its horrendous guilt was forever behind him, paid for by three lost decades in prison. He would try to forget it all. He had earned the right to a new beginning. But, but a certain French journalist named Moreau could not forget. His family had been massacred in a village that Engel's army had overrun during the early days of the war. Every last person in the village had been shot to death by Engel's soldiers. No, Moreau could not forget. For 30 years, he had planned revenge. If the Nuremberg court could not sentence Engel to die, Moreau would pronounce his own death sentence. Now, after 30 years, the time had come. He went into the village to stoke up the embers of hatred and fear in the minds of the village radicals and crazies. He did it well, for they made plans to go up the mountain, burn the cabin down, and assassinate the former general. But Moreau had some lingering questions, and he wanted answers from Engel. So he went to the cabin. The afternoon before the night of vengeance, introduced himself to a shaken Engel and spent the whole afternoon in a terrible inquisition of the old man. He had to get the whole wretched story straight in all its details before Engel died with his secrets. But as the afternoon probe, afternoon's probing dialogue wore on, Moreau's taste for revenge began t- tasting sour. After 30 years, for the first time, Moreau had doubts. He plunged himself into Engel's soul and tore his own soul in pieces. Moreau changed his mind. He warned Engel of the villagers' intention to attack that night and offered to take him to safety. The general waited a long minute before responding. He would go, he said, on one condition, that Moreau forgive him. Moreau found himself unable to do that. He could save him, but never would he forgive him. That night, the villagers came as a mob. They walked in the cowardly courage of the faceless mob, courage given by hoods that covered their miserable faces. They burned the cabin to the ground and shot Engel and his wife dead. The end. Now, Smeed's reacting to having watched that play. Writes, the play left us gasping for an answer to the question of forgiveness. What was it that Engel wanted more than life itself? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. The question of forgiveness, because we all know the black angel who hunts us down with shame and guilt. Once upon a time, the Galilean dealt with the black angel. And because he did, our shame can be healed. Open your Bible with me, please, to the little gospel, the dramatic, punchy gospel of Mark. Put your Bible out, your phone, whatever. Grab the pew Bible in front of you if you don't have something to track this narrative. It's a powerful one. Mark chapter 2, please. Mark chapter 2. 
I'll be in the NIV today. Any translation you have is fine with me. Those of you watching, we're delighted to have you. I'll put the words on the screen for you. Grab a Bible if you have one near you. Track this with us. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Wait a minute, this isn't your home? No, my home is Nazareth, but they rejected me in Nazareth. Good, we'll take you here. That's what had happened. They heard that he had come home. Verse 2, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. But then that was the Galilean. People were drawn to him like iron shavings to a magnet. There was something in that man's eyes that drew you. Dark, Palestinian eyes. Gentle eyes that brimmed so quickly with compassion and care. Strong eyes that pierced your very soul and read your deepest secrets. And yet eyes that kept shining with the warmth of a non-judgmental acceptance. And so the people flocked. Verse 3. Now some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Mark is the only gospel account to tell us that there were four plus one. Four friends of a shriveled paralytic, each clutching the corner of a dirty hammock that bears the wasted body of a young man. Desire of Ages, by the way, tells us that the young man's disease was the result of a life of sin. You figure it out. A life of sin. He's got a disease now. He'd sowed his wild oats. He was reaping this dreaded harvest, filled with remorse and guilt. The shame was so strong you could smell it. I was in Washington, D.C. with a pastor friend of mine named Rob Lloyd. We were both on the General Conference Committee. One evening, Rob, who, by the way, tragically died this summer on his way to Africa to conduct a series of evangelistic meetings. Tragic loss. Rob went down alone to the National Cathedral. This is the third largest Gothic cathedral in the world, in the heart of our nation's capital. As he wandered that imposing cathedral, he found a church bulletin on the floor. He picked it up out of curiosity, and he read that there's going to be a special prayer healing service for AIDS victims that very night. Why, it's just in an hour. So he decides to stay and watch. He later told me it was one of the most moving scenes he had ever witnessed. The long, long nave of that chapel, cathedral, is packed with AIDS victims and their companions. One by one, they approach the Episcopalian priest and laity up front to receive the laying on of hands and prayers for healing. As Rob uh, described it, it was a time of, of deep emotion, of tears, of, of hope, when, when healing was the, the, the truest prayer. And I imagine myself, there were not perhaps a few hearts there that night, very much like the dark and shame-ridden heart of this young man, the paralytic, the victim of this black angel. Desire of Ages describes his heart. Put it on the screen for you. Yet it was not physical restoration that this young man desired so much as relief from the burden of sin. If he could see Jesus and receive the assurance of forgiveness and peace with heaven, he would be content to live or die according to God's will. 
The cry of the dying man was, Oh, that I might come into his presence. There was no time to lose. Already his wasted flesh was showing signs of decay. He besought his friends to carry him on his bed to Jesus, and this they gladly undertook to do. Thank God for friends. But you know what? I used to think it was the friends who talked him into going to find Jesus. No. It was a suffering man himself who initiates this, the search. Oh, that I might come into his presence. You know the story well. They try, and they try again and again, all to no avail. Desire of Ages tells us it was the invalid who finally weakly said, Try the roof. Verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. And by the way, if you, have, if you have never traveled on a subway or a train in Tokyo during rush hour, you have no concept of what it means to be packed like a can of sardines. This is that. Jam-packed. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. I've often wished that I could have an iPhone video capture of this moment because whose face I would really like to be watching is the face of Peter. After all, it no doubt was Peter's house whose roof is now being disassembled. The disciples are closest to, closest to Jesus and they look up and there goes the disintegration. By the way, it wasn't such an impossible uh, ordeal back with Capernaum roofs. All the roofs were, they were all one story. They were flat, a series of wooden uh, rafters every three feet. Then on top of the rafters, short sticks were laid over which a thick coating of brushwood or bush. Then on top of that, a coating of mortar-like mud. And on top of that, packed earth that is rolled flat. So that if you wanted to rip through the roof, you could. It'd take a little bit of work, but you could get through that roof. Now, you imagine people in the room, and Jesus is just teaching away, and suddenly the ceiling starts coming apart. Every eye in the, roof, in the room looks up just in time to receive that shower of dust and dirt. And suddenly everybody's looking instinctively down. Your eyes are watering simultaneously with them blinking, and you know how it is. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, what, keep reading. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, all five of them, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is your day. I have very good news for you. Your sins are forgiven. Desire of Ages catches the next moment. Watch this. Put it on the screen for you. The words fell like music on the sufferer's ears. The burden of despair rose from the sick man's soul. The peace of forgiveness rests upon his spirit and shines out upon his countenance. His physical pain is gone and his whole being is transformed. The helpless paralytic is healed. The guilty sinner is pardoned. In simple faith, he accepted the words of Jesus as the boon of new life. He urged no further request but lay in blissful silence too happy for words. The light of heaven irradiated his countenance and the people look with awe upon the scene. Wow. A miracle. 
A healing has just taken place. It is a miracle. It's the healing of forgiveness. Listen, it's not the disease that destroys you. It's the despair born on the winds of guilt wafted by the black angel. It's the shame. It's the remorse. That's what kills you. Like flesh, like, like a flesh-eating bacteria, it just devours you. And the man, with one single pronouncement from Christ, he is healed. Makes you wonder, do you suppose it can be that simple for you? Could it be that easy for you? One command. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. He knew what the man, the, the young man is thinking. He knows what they're thinking. And he said to them, why, why are you thinking these things? Verse 9, which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, piece of cake, young rabbi, easy to answer. Anybody knows it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven because nobody can prove it. Which is C.S. Lewis's point. This proves the divinity of Christ. In his classic, Mere Christianity, let me put the words on the screen for you. By the way, you have these in a study guide today in the bulletin. You can take all the quotations home. Here's Lewis. Now, unless the speaker is God, son, your sins are forgiven. Unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. I mean, please. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed? An untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money. Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we could give us of his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all their offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin, end quote. And so to prove that he can heal the heart, Jesus steps forward to heal the body. Verse 10, but speaking still to the teachers of the law, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Never forget that line as long as you live. Never forget that line. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Wow. 
Oh, blessed truth, write it down in your heart and never forget it. He who forgives our sin heals our shame. He who forgives our sin heals our shame. Shame, the great paralyzer, the great crippler of the human heart. Psychologist Brene Brown, in her, in her book, Daring Greatly, How to... How, how the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent, and lead. And I told you I read this book this summer and have been brooding over it ever since. Psychologist Brown offers a rather expansive definition of shame that is worth your own brooding. I'll put it on the screen. You'll have this in the study guide as well that you take home. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. She goes on. It is the fear of disconnection. It is the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection, end quote. And then Brene Brown offers a list, a whole page full of, of, of reasons, descriptions people give, examples of shame. Let me run a few of them by you. Shame is hiding the fact that I am in recovery. Shame is raging at my kids. Shame is flunking out of school twice. Shame is bankruptcy. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of the client. Shame is my husband leaving me for my next-door neighbor. Shame is my DUI driving under the influence. Shame is telling my fiancé that my dad lives in France when, in fact, he's in prison. Shame is Internet porn. Shame is hearing my parents fight to the walls and wondering if I'm the only one who feels afraid. Shame. We know it well, don't we? What was that definition she offered? Put it on the screen again. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging, end quote. How do you suppose that paralytic felt? Of course. His, his lifestyle has brought on this disease, shame, this painful feeling that he is flawed and therefore unworthy of love. It would have been palpable. The shame was so strong, you could smell it when they lowered the mat. Sexual shame. The woman thrown in a heap at the feet of Jesus. The paralytic. Mary Magdalene. Intensely painful, which is why, by the way, Brown notes, shame thrives on secret keeping. Let me put that on the screen for you. Shame thrives on secret keeping. And when it comes to secrets, there's some serious science behind the 12-step program saying you're only as sick as your secrets. Huh? Who but the paralytic knew the secret for his paralysis? But shame is not only sexual. Look at Peter in front of the whole crowd. Swears he never knew this man. 
Shameful behavior. What is shameful behavior? It means it leaves you full of shame. Peter knew shame. You know shame. It is the universal emotion. I know shame. We all suffer it. Which surely means that if our Creator is going to save the likes of you and me, He will have to find a way to, to heal us of our shame. And He did. And it's called forgiveness. Lewis Meads, in that book I read from a moment ago, How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong? I love this. God invented forgiveness as the only way to keep his romance with the fallen human family alive. Son, your sin is forgiven. Woman, neither do I condemn you. It is as clear as the scars upon our hearts today that forgiveness is the divine antidote. It is the divine healing for our shame. You say, oh, come on, Dwight, but how can a perfect God forgive such an imperfect wretch like me? Don't we sing those words in Amazing Grace? Wretch like me. Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers, this is the last classic he wrote, by the way, The Brothers Karamazov. The two brothers, Ivan the Atheist, perhaps have read the book, and Al Alyosha is the simple believer. They're having one afternoon a heated exchange between the two brothers over this notion of a good God who somehow tolerates people's inhumanity to people. But what is worse, the atheist brother Ivan, what is worse is this, is, is this infliction upon the children of the race. So Ivan is making this indictment against a God who tolerates man's inhumanity to children, and poor Alyosha knows not what to say. He just sits there silent with his face in his hands for long moments. Can't counteract it. Counter-argue the point. Finally, he thinks of a sentence. This is why a perfect God can heal an imperfect wretch like me. Right here, this is the line of the brother, Alyosha. There is one who can forgive everyone everything because he shed his innocent blood for everyone and everything. Ayosha says, that's the answer. Imperfect wretch like me, how did he put it? There is one who can forgive everyone everything because he shed his innocent blood for everyone and everything. And ladies and gentlemen, on that cross, the Galilean prayed Shame's greatest healing when he uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Desire of Ages declares that prayer of Christ for his enemies embraced the world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time. Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. To all, forgiveness is freely offered. 
in that outstretched embrace, God has forgiven the entire human race from the beginning of time to the end of time. He has forgiven every sin, every sinner. Whether you ask or not, you are forgiven. Oh, blessed truth. He who forgives our sin heals our shame. But I warn you, I warn you, the ploy of the enemy of our souls, the ploy of the dark, of the black angel, I warn you, he's going to tell you that your sin is too premeditated, it is too prolonged, it is too shameful, it is too terrible, it is a cunning ploy, but he holds by the thousands the shame-ridden souls of this earth. Steps to Christ. I love this. Put it on the screen, please. When Satan comes to tell you that you are a great sinner, look up to your Redeemer. Just lift your eyes to heaven and tell the enemy, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's already died for me. I am a sinner. You win, devil. You win. I already knew it anyway. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, Paul writes. I'm the worst. Have at it. Heap it on. But he died to save me. He died to forgive me. Wow. Tell the enemy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that you may be saved by his matchless love. We have been great sinners, but Christ died so that we might be forgiven. End quote. Because what else is there to say? Your shame has been paid for. You're carrying around this ball and chain and dragging it with you everywhere you go, 30 years, 50 years, one year, one night, it doesn't matter. That ball and chain does not belong to you. The black angel has affixed it to your ankle and you can't leave it and you can't forget. But somebody stretched out his arms one day 2,000 years ago, and because he did, he prayed for your forgiveness long before you asked for it. You are offered healing. And he cannot heal you if you... No, but i got to keep the ball and chain. Of course he can't heal you. You have to let go of that ball and chain. You have to let him take it. Like the paralytic, just lie there, look into his eyes, and let him tell you, girl, boy, your sins are forgiven. And then you accept it. You accept it. 2,000 years ago, you were forgiven and you've been carrying this ball and chain all these weeks and months. The dark black angel has held us captive long enough. Healed, be healed of your shame. Jesus says, be healed. So I wish to conclude today with two invitations. Invitation number one, would you be willing to give all your sins? You say, which ones do I? All of them. All your sins. If your heart is telling you it's a sin, accept it. Don't argue. Just let it go. Take it to him. Take all your sins to him. And what will he do with all your sins? He will forgive them all. All sinners, all sins from the beginning of time to the end of time were covered in that one prayer. Father, forgive them. 
Number one, take all your sins to your Savior. Let those dark eyes penetrate your soul and see the compassion in His Spirit, as He says, neither do I condemn you. Let it go. Let's go. Two responses. Both of them are on the back of the Connect card today. We should pull it out so that it's not just auditorily you're hearing it. I want you to see it. There are only two responses. Guests, we're glad to have you, those of you that are worshiping with us today. Front of the card, demographic information that you're comfortable with. Back of the card, we call this our next step side of the card. Two, two responses today. My next step today is box number one. I bring to Christ my sin so that His forgiveness will heal my shame. I'm putting a check mark there, and I'd like to invite you to do the same. Put it in. You say, do I? No, just put it in. Go through the motion of acting on what you've heard. Otherwise, it's in one ear and out the other, and you've forgotten it, and the ball and chain leave, leave this building with you today. They don't have to. God can set you free from that ball and chain, from the shame. He can set you free, but you have to ask. Put your name on the front. Just put a check mark there. I hope we all will check that box. But I put a second box today. It reads like this, I would like to be baptized into Christ, accepting His forgiveness, cleansing my past, and healing my shame. If you have not been baptized, you haven't followed Jesus quite that far yet, now's the time. You're not be baptized today, next week. No, but make the decision today. If you have not been baptized, follow the example of the Galilean. He says, come follow me. Let him wash that ball and chain away. If you have not been baptized, I want to invite you today to put a check mark right there. Would you please put an email address on the front if you do? We need, we'll be in touch with you. Nobody's rushed into anything. You take all the time you wish, but make the decision today. How many times has this moment come? Oh, well, I'll get to it another time. This is your other time. Today's the day. I want to invite you to put a check mark right there. We'll be in touch. Don't go another day without that decision made. The great healer, he forgives me of my sin and he heals me of my shame. Follow Jesus. Put a check mark there. And may God seal our decisions today to live without that ball and chain, to live in the forgiveness of his grace. Let's pray. Oh God. What can we say? We've tried to heal ourselves a thousand times before. We're still dragging it. It still clunks behind us. Oh, Father, the black angel, you dealt with him at Calvary. In that single prayer, Lord Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We didn't know. We did, but we didn't. Oh, God, in the name of the Lord Jesus, the Galilean healer, we receive the gift of that forgiveness. Roll that ball away. Cleanse 
that shame away. Heal us inside out. And let us go from this place like that paralytic with a song in our hearts. For we have been with Jesus, and He has healed us. Amen.